We're going to continue in our worship with the reading of the word. So you can open up your Bibles or you can feel free to just listen along. Uh, Our story in the book of Acts, we've been reading about the lame man that Peter and John miraculously healed outside the temple gate and then went on to preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're going to pick up today in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Anas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. The stone, he is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Oh, you guys know my name. My name is Ben. I am one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be with you. It's good to be here today. Um, I'm thankful for the chance to talk with you, to talk together, and we'll be able to talk as we have dinner, too, about the scriptures and about life with Jesus, life in his church, and what it means. Here at Central, I think we have, by and large, considered this a Christian church, yes? And so we come here every Sunday. And then throughout the week and at other times, we come to worship Jesus, the one true God. So I'd ask you, how do you feel as Mackenzie reads that last line of the passage that she read? What kind of happens inside you when you hear those words? How do you feel when we are told by the apostle that Jesus is the only true God? I want to look at it on the slide. Steve, could you pop it up for us? There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. What happens when you read it? I think there's probably one of three things that might go down when you read that. First one might be that you're annoyed or offended, And and I get that. There, especially in our world today, there's a sense of, really? 
You're going to make that exclusive claim? Nobody else in the world has the truth? Nobody else? It's just Jesus? I think we've all seen this passage or passages like it on billboards, bumper stickers, almost always in, in, uh, covered in fire, sometimes dripping blood, you know? Only this. It's almost a condemning sort of thing. So if you hear these words and you're kind of put off by it, I understand that. And, and to some degree, if you've used or seen these words wielded in a condemning way, uh, I relate to that pain. The second thing you might be wondering is, uh, or feeling as you read those words, is a sense of conviction, a, a sense of wonder. You might read it and say, if Jesus is the true path to salvation, then where do I stand? How do I fit into this picture? Am I actually with him? You're wondering, you feel a sense of, hmm, I've got to pay attention to that. And then I think a third response might be, there's probably more than three, but I think these are probably big umbrella responses. The third one might be, you feel encouraged and even relieved. You look at these words and you say, this is good. It's like the end of uh, the Indiana Jones movie, remember? Where there's the chainmail wearing knight and Indy chooses the cup and he's like, Ma, you have chosen wisely. You know, I read this and it's like that night. Okay, I'm here at a Christian church worshiping Jesus. I've chosen wisely. That's good. It feels kind of consoling. I say, thank you, Bible. You've helped me. I think most of us are probably in that last category. Acts 4.12 gives us a sense of peace. I've chosen wisely. That's how I've always understood it, and I want to tell you this morning that that is no longer how I understand this passage. I understand it in a completely different way, and it is punchy to me, extremely punchy. I think that Luke is painting a picture here. I think he's showing us what happens when people use the name God or Jesus to describe false gods that they actually worship. Nobody in the community of Yahweh wants to be found in idolatry. This has kind of always been a problem with Israel and the Hebrew people. Idolatry, idolatry. So you don't ever want to be found in the people of God as an idolater. But the human condition is so prone to wander to idolatry that we see the story of Israel and our own story in the church as one of wandering, going away from God, and so forth. And when you do go away from God, within the community of God, you don't want to be seen as an idolater. What's the best possible thing to do? Call your idols Jesus. Then you can still be worshiping the one true God in the community. We can take the slide down now, Steve. So we come to this passage, and I think it causes us to ask questions like, who is the true deity? Who really is God? And, and then it, asks, it forces us to say, how do we know him for real? How do we know him in this sea of options? The different claims to deity or salvation, how do we know which one is truly God, the one true God? 
of God. Okay, it's Peter talking here. Peter is, is speaking, so let's start with Peter. And let's remember what we learned about Peter through the Gospels. And we we've see Peter in the New Testament and other places, but we come through the Gospels. And we see Peter, if you remember, starting out as Simon. And Peter is a regular blue-collar uh, fisherman. He's hanging out in Capernaum. He's in Galilee. Galilee is not the, the land of the up-and-coming. It's kind of a backwater area, very poverty-stricken. People who come out of that area are not highly regarded. They're just average folks, okay? So that's where Peter picks up the story. He's not very popular. He's uneducated. He's just kind of a, a lower-class guy. Jesus comes and invites Peter onto his team, and Peter is stoked. Jesus says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rename you from Simon to Peter. You're going to belong to this crew. And then we watch Peter rolling with Jesus for a couple of years. And Peter becomes this, this person we kind of resonate with. He's stoked to be with Jesus, but he can never figure him out. He's weak. He's prone to wander. <laughs> Peter, Peter consistently is confused by what Jesus says. He doesn't quite get it. At one point, he's missed Jesus so much that Jesus calls him Satan, <laughs> literally calls him Satan. And then, and then Peter has this sort of moment where he's like, okay, I'll get back on track. And then all of a sudden, he's sitting there denying Jesus three times in a row, denying that he even knows him. And it's this massive, devastating moment for Peter, and he feels guilty. He feels awful. And then Jesus wraps his arms around him after the resurrection and says, no, Peter, you're with me. I forgive you. I love you. Peter is stoked again. And then we enter into this scene as Jesus has departed. Here comes Peter. Now, what's happening here? Peter is coming into this place. You've got to really feel this. Feel the weight. Feel, start to sit in Peter's shoes. He's coming into the temple precinct. He's coming to stand. He's, he's engaging with the absolute highest powers of his world. Government, religion, they're tied. Number one highest power and authority in the land. These are the guys who just brutally and publicly murdered his best friend, Jesus. This is Peter. He's standing there literally facing death. And what does he say to him? He says to the people of God, you're worshiping the wrong God. It's amazing to say such a thing. It's not unlike what Jesus had said to the same men before, and those men killed Jesus for suggesting it. And here's Peter, round two. You are worshiping the wrong God. And they say, well, we're worshiping Yahweh, you fool. And he says, no, you just called your God Yahweh. Salvation does not come from the one you worship, is what Peter is saying to the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the priests of the temple, the high priests. To the high priests, this lowly fisherman stands. You worship a false god. Remember in the passage we read last week, just prior to this, Peter has identified Jesus 
as the Holy One, the servant of God, tapping back into Isaiah's great prophecies about the Messiah. He said he's the righteous one. He has literally called Jesus the originator of life, the one who created life. He has said Jesus is God in a very real sense. And now if you're a Bible scholar, if you're a scribe or a high priest or one of these elders, what are you thinking when Peter says Acts 4.12? Jesus is the only way. What are you feeling inside? What are you thinking? Well, you're certainly not comforted. You're challenged. And if you're one of those Jewish leaders, you probably take the first commandment out of the ten pretty seriously. You shall have no other gods before me, says God in his first command. Now here's Peter saying you should worship Jesus. What are they feeling? They feel like, like Peter is suggesting that they should stop worshiping Yahweh the way that they have. That they should take on a new God. So on one hand, there's just, there's no possible way that what Peter is saying to them could possibly be right. He's asking them to deny one of the Ten Commandments, indeed the first one. And yet, even though he's asking them to do something sinful and terrible and, and rebellious, surely against God, he's also performing miraculous healing. Remember how this whole narrative we're in right now started out, and it was Peter taking a man who had been crippled for 40 years. We learn that in verse 22 of chapter 4. For 40 years the man had been crippled, and Peter touches him and raises him up miraculously. And they say, who did that? Peter says, it wasn't me. It's not because I'm holy. He says, it's because of God, the same God you killed. As McKenzie read, the cornerstone you guys rejected. You're worshiping the wrong God. So they say, that can't be the case, but what do we do with this power he seems to have? It doesn't compute. They say, we thought we put an end to this movement when we killed Jesus. I thought we were done with this nonsense. Why? Why is this still happening? Well, Peter would suggest resurrection. Peter's there facing this great power. Huge courage on Peter's behalf because Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection is absolutely key. Why is the movement still moving? Because Jesus is still on the move. The death of the cross couldn't hold him down. The grave couldn't keep him. So the movement is still in play. And these Jewish religious leaders are just baffled. What do we do? Peter would say, yeah, he's on the move because he is the great king. He is the redeemer we've always waited for. This is him. No, that can't be right. Half of these guys, the Sadducees, they didn't even believe in resurrection at all. This was a debate in the Jewish community of their day. Pharisees did, Sadducees didn't. They're like, how does this play out? So here's Peter, and they say, this guy is just flat dumb. The worst part, though, is not that he just says dumb stuff. The worst part is this healing that he did. Now we've got all these people believing his dumb stuff because of the healing. What are we going to do? And I think 
I think this is Luke's way of sort of winking at us, you know? Here they are, totally baffled about what to do, this smaller crew of, of religious elitists. And then the other side, you have 5,000 men, it says, just, just the men. 5,000 people believe what Peter is talking about. They're trying to stop it, and the whole world is going after Jesus. That would be the language of John. Luke is saying, yeah, everyone in the town knew this guy who got healed, which means everybody is talking. This is undeniable power. It cannot be explained. Listen to the words of these men uh, themselves in chapter 4, verse 16. What should we do with these men, the scribes and the, and the elitists say? What should we do with Peter and John? For it is plain, they say, to all who live in Jerusalem, everybody can plainly see the notable miraculous sign that has come about through them. We cannot deny it. They're super bummed. Like, we really want to deny this, but we can't. Bummer. And then it gets even more tricky. Go back to verses 13 and 14. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they discovered that they were, and they discovered that they were uneducated men and ordinary men. And they were amazed because they recognized these men had been with Jesus. Uh oh. These guys are with Jesus. They're claiming it's by the power of Jesus they're doing these things, and they're doing these things that we can't deny. Ah! And because they saw the man who had been healed standing right there with them, they had nothing to say. Worst of all was the fact that everybody knew that they were attached to Jesus. That was the biggest problem. We stopped Jesus. We put an end to his power with our greater power, they thought. The power of the one true God, they thought. Sum all of that up to, if the Jewish, Jewish rulers try to say that Peter and John are not legitimate, then they're going to look like fools. We can't deny their claim, and it makes us really angry. Okay? So that's kind of where they're sitting. Now, here is where you can see a glimpse into the God that these men really bow to. I think Luke is trying to show it to us. It's a very common God. It's a very popular God. I think he's very, very popular today. He's manifested himself in many ways throughout history. And his name is control. Stop talking about Jesus, they say to Peter and John in private. They wield the power of their God to try to do good. They believe stopping Peter and John is a good thing. So now they call upon the power of their God, which is control. Okay, we can't deny them. We're hosed if we try to do that. We can't stop them. At least we can control them and say, okay, you boys are on our turf. You're going to do this stupid stuff. We can't even stop you from doing it, but stop associating it with Jesus right now. Pay very close attention here. Who do these men think they worship? Yahweh. 
They think their God is truly God. So when they try to control other people, they believe that they're empowered by God to do that, that God wants them to do that. This is why they're so baffled. This man, Jesus, who they just know is a fake God, seems to have more power than they do. And they can't figure it out. How could we, empowered by the greatest and only God in the history of history, how can we be outwitted by this low life from Nazareth? The irony is that they're right. Jesus does have more power than the God they worship. And that suggests that Acts 4 shows us a picture of Peter challenging religious people who think that they love and follow God, but they are really just defining their idols with the title of God, the biblical name for God. And when I start to recognize that, the passage takes a turn for me. It's not as warm and cozy. When Peter says Jesus is the only salvation, they are positive that he's wrong on that. But why? How are they so sure Jesus isn't God? Even in the face of this spiritual power that they can clearly see, they yet decide, no, there's no way he's God. They vehemently disagree with Peter. We disagree with you, Peter, you fool. Why do we disagree? Because you watched us kill him. We killed him. You don't kill the true Messiah. Nobody does. He's too powerful. He comes to powerfully conquer our enemies. He didn't do that. We killed him. He comes to give us power and glory. Jesus of Nazareth did not do that. Just like all of our favorite Bible verses say, the Messiah is coming to give us power and glory and status. And Jesus never did any of that. That's how we know that you're wrong, Peter and John. And here's where Peter, the simple blue-collar guy, he never finished high school. All right, here he is. He says, but that's exactly what I'm trying to say to you guys. You have put other gods before Yahweh for so long, you don't even know him when he's right in front of you. Look at yourselves. You're literally here. We are on 35 acres of paved granite and marble. We are on 35 acres of pavement at the temple precinct filled with thousands of people. They all see it. They're all believing in you, you small little group of religious, self-righteous people. You think they're all wrong. You're sitting here denying the God when he's right in front of you. Why? Why can't you see his miraculous power? Because you think he's taking away from you. You're losing. If you acknowledge that he truly is God, you're going to lose your power. You're going to lose your status. And you're going to lose your cash. All of your system will come apart 
if you acknowledge. And there, my friends, I think Peter is saying to these guys, that's why you don't actually know who this is. You'll have to lose all of that stuff if you acknowledge it. Your social status proves the chains of bondage that you are in. Not that you're better than other people like you think. You're not leading anything here. You're not leading anyone. You're sitting here murmuring about the Bible passages to yourself while 5,000 people come to know Jesus for real. Your love for a powerful religious institution proves the chains of bondage that you are in. Not that you are more correct than other people. As Jesus said, this temple that you've been leading, it's not of God anymore. It's become a den of thieves. It's become a den of whatever. It's not of God. It's just a temple of you. Does this resonate with you and me at all? My goodness, I think it does. How many of us still drool, salivate when we reminisce about the days gone by where there was so much more Christian power in our nation? When Christians felt like they had control over what was said in public school when we had control over what laws were enforced and which ones weren't. Those days have long since gone, and what are we doing? Oh, that time was a time of bliss for many people. But that bliss, I believe, came not as a gift from Jesus. It came as Turkish delight from the white witch. It came as a gift from the blinding and the enslaving false god called control and power. We didn't want to believe that we were worshiping those idols, and so we simply called them Jesus. Throughout that entire era of church, kind of this Christendom, government-enforced Christianity, throughout that whole era we feel the greatness of all the celebrity and power and presidents. Did we hear Jesus whispering to us? Did you not see how I lived? Did you ever see me connecting to a government or any kind of human power in any way whatsoever? Did I not tell you that the true power of God was located in grace, and love, in forgiveness? Didn't you see how I, the human being with more ability to control things than any human being ever, laid that comfort down? I laid down my right to be equal with God so that I could humble myself and become a servant. Did you see that? I humbled myself and became obedient to God, says Jesus, so powerfully that it cost me my life. I was obedient unto death. Did that look to you like God leading his people to secure power in this world? 
Does Jesus' story suggest that to us at all? I don't think so. I don't think you can see it in the Gospels. Now, having spent their whole lives bowing to that God, even abusively sacrificing their children to that God, I see many Christians still in bondage every week. And I stand before you not as one pointing a finger of judgment. I too am there. It's just how I was brought up. I see us every week crying out to the gods of power and control, moaning and weeping about the way that our fantasy of a Christian nation has been lost. It was just a fantasy in the beginning. How do you know? Because of where we are. More often than not, these kinds of worshipers have no time to care for neighbors with love and generosity and hospitality of the Savior. We don't have that kind of time. We have even less time to build up and strengthen Jesus' church. Why? Because the true gods that we worship, or I should say the false gods, the ones we're actually worshiping, they never ask us to build up the church. False gods never say you should give of yourself and your time and your resources to Jesus' church. False gods never tell us to love our neighbors with forgiveness and grace and hospitality. Why? Because caring for neighbors and building up and strengthening churches involves suffering. And that is not what our God calls us to. He would never. He wants us to make our nation great. He wants us to make our experience of life great. He wants us to have our children's lives be most pleasurable they can possibly have. That's what God wants. He wants us to feel the comfort of power, control, and greatness. And I say to you, if you're stuck in that place, this Christian thing has been very awkward for you for a very long time. My hope is that you can turn to Jesus for freedom from those other chains. Those chains of bondage have hurt so many of us and have wrecked so many churches. We are in this scene that we're reading in Acts chapter 4, and my question is, where are we? We're in there somewhere. Where do you and I stand? Are we following the God named Jesus who laid all comfort down so that he could love us and unite with us as broken and dying people. We were his enemies, right? What did he do to us? Did he kill us? Or did he love and forgive us? Did he not tell us how to fight evil? The greatest power is forgiveness. This Jesus, are we with him? Or are we following the gods that promise immediate power and status and money, immediate relief from suffering? That's the crux, isn't it? Had these religious rulers seen as they peered into the Old Testament, as they looked through the Torah, had they seen in those words of Scripture a picture of a Messiah who would be sent to suffer, uh, who would be sent to die, who would be sent to give his life as a ransom, then they would look at Jesus and say, ah, this is the Messiah. They would understand him. They would have recognized him, but they wanted a God who would make their communities safer and their TV shows cleaner. 
They wanted a God who would give them a better job. They loved the idea, loved the idea of a God who would keep the ugly and sinful and broken people out of sight and at least wherever they go, not in our presence. Keep them away. These religious rulers don't hate Jesus because he did amazingly beautiful work and healed people. They hate Jesus because he claims to be God while in no way fitting into their understanding of what God is all about. You see it yet? Had Jesus come to the table saying, each of you must bear a pile of gold, they would say, the Messiah is here, awesome. Had Jesus come and said, you must each bear the ability to control whatever you want to control, and you must bear the weight of watching me slaughter your enemies, then they would have been on their knees in tears of joy saying, it's you, it's truly the Messiah, you've come. But instead, Jesus says, you must bear a cross. And they say, oh, you're not God, (laughs) clearly, there's no way. When Jesus says you must bear a cross, we think about the way Paul talks about Jesus as the God of all, or about God, Jesus, as the God of all comfort. How does Jesus, the God of all comfort, tell us to bear a cross? Um, Is the cross a Nerf cross, like nice and made of foam, so it's comfortable? I don't think so. What's he getting at? I think it means that even though I'm the God of all comfort, I'm the God of real comfort, not fake comfort. You need to know that this means real comfort. Fake comfort costs you your life. My comfort, and and it might be quite pleasurable, but it costs you your life. Real comfort can be quite painful physically, emotionally, spiritually but it gives you life. So when he says, I'm the God of all comfort, he means I'm the God of real comfort, the kind that gives you life and doesn't take it from you. I am the great king of the eternal kingdom and the redeemer, but my redemption has to do with death and resurrection, not satisfying your desires. I'll say that again. My redemption... Jesus' redemption of us as a people, as a church, has to do with death and resurrection, not just satisfying our desires. Acts 4 then shows us the picture of a man empowered by the Spirit, worshiping the one true God, and he is willfully walking into almost guaranteed death as a result. That's Peter. And he's saying, I am doing this because I know the real God, the one under whom people are saved. There is none else. I am doing this because of Jesus. What are you doing in this world, is what I hear Peter asking me. What are you doing? Now the passage is getting hot for me. Uh, uh, right under the collar. Am I really with Jesus or do I just call whatever I'm worshiping at the time Jesus so that I can feel better? Consider Moloch. You guys ever heard the name Moloch? 
Moloch was a god back in the day that the Israelites had some trouble with. The Ammonites worshipped Moloch. Moloch was a statue that they built made of metal. There were fire chambers in the bottom, and in his, some, some accounts show that in his chest there were seven different boxes. One box for turtle doves, one box for grain, one box for oil, one box for wine, one box for a human child. Load the boxes up, spark the fire. We worship Moloch, and why do we do it? Because he brings rain. He promises immediate relief from the suffering that comes from a lack of rain. So we have to give life to him so he'll give us rain. He'll make our immediate life better. Some accounts of Moloch don't talk so much about those boxes. They just talk about his statues always look like this. His arms are out with hands open. They'd warm that statue up till it was red hot, and then they would set their human children in his hands to burn to death, screaming and weeping. And the priests of the religion that followed Moloch would say, we need music and drums and tambourines as loud as possible on this day so that the people won't hear the cries of the parents as their children are scorched to death. Why were they willing to do it? Because Moloch promised, like all false gods promise, if you follow me, I will make your experience of life a lot better. Jesus says, if you follow me, we're going to die together. No wonder it's hard for us to follow Jesus. In Leviticus, God is giving law to his people, and he says in one place, you shall not let your children pass through the fire. Why? Because the Israelites were literally giving their children up to Moloch. They saw him as a king. His name is like Melech. The Hebrew word for king. It was comfort in a sense, but not really. It was a fake comfort because whatever rain they thought it was producing, can you imagine the PTSD that those parents had to suffer under for the rest of their life? Remembering when they took their little daughter up to sit on the burning hands of Moloch? Okay, we got our crops. Think of the trauma that some of our most successful parents suffer today after achieving the comforting rewards of the American dream, a religion that is built on the gods of productivity and progress. Productivity and progress is the unquestioned goal, isn't it? Who do we love? People who are progressing and who are super productive. Who gets in the way of progress and productivity? Children. What's the best way to help deal with the children? Put a screen in front of them. We're not burning them on altars to Moloch anymore. They're burning up in front of LCD screens. Why do we do it? I have 17 Bible verses that prove to me that Jesus wants me to have the best life now. Hey, he wants me to be in control of everything too. And how cool is that? That means I'm worshiping Jesus when I pursue those things. He makes me feel better about all of my endless sinning because he tells me it's not sin at all. It's just following him. Hating my enemies, desiring more and more money, doing whatever it takes to get it, lusting for power and the ability. Jesus is my homeboy. He helps me do all of this stuff. It's fantastic. And one of the best things ever is Acts 4.12. 
because it tells me that I chose wisely. He's the only way. I couldn't agree more. Thank you again, my Bible. You've done your job. You've made me feel great. Isn't that the promise of all false gods? They've always been promising to ease that pain that this world brings. When you come to this passage, you're coming to the most terrifying moment in Peter's life. What he's doing is a guaranteed death sentence, almost. And I see him as a calm man who is at peace, and he's confident. He has the words of eternal life because he's speaking with and for Jesus. You will suffer. You will bear a cross. But Peter, with 5,000 other people, see it. They see the way the world works, and it doesn't work like Jesus. And I ask you, what is more freeing, this kind of courage or fear? Do you follow a God who walked boldly into the face of death, took the full brunt of its power, and then walked out of the grave unscathed? Is that your God? Or do you follow a God who tempts you to think that you don't have to do that, that you can find easier, more pleasurable routes to God? Acts 4.12, there is no salvation outside of Jesus. I don't think that any Christian here today can honestly say, oh, cool, this makes me feel great about where I'm at. I can't do it anymore. I read it and I say, this challenges me to say, where am I? I think it's a call to me, to us, to say, do I have that kind of courage? Do I stand and suffer in this world because I have faith in God or am I just trying to get out from under it? Do I have the courage to feel the pain of not having control over my children? Do I have the courage to feel the pain of losing my money so that something greater can happen? Do I have the courage to suffer the loss of my reputation, my status, so that I can live for the great king? If I don't share in this spirit-filled courage, then I'm forced to ask, who am I actually following? Who am I chasing after? Where do you stand? Are you hanging on to the promises of a false god that's taking your life away? Or are you standing boldly with Peter here under threat of death and saying, however this plays out, however much pain comes, I am staying true to the one great king, the Redeemer, whose comfort proves all others' chains. I'll end with this note. Achilles, I have this in your bulletin. Achilles was the great Greek warrior. Upon going into a big battle, the crew, his people, they said to Achilles, Achilles, don't go on. If you go on, you will surely die. And Achilles said, an immortal sentence, gone through thousands of years. Achilles said, Nevertheless, I am for going on. There's a courage that's just reckless. Come what may, I don't know, I'm going for it. There's a much deeper courage that says, I have calculated it, I know what's coming, and I'm going after it. Nevertheless, I'm going to press on. Peter is standing in those temple courts, knowing the vicious danger that he's facing, the same power that killed Jesus, and nevertheless... He presses on. 
Will we as a community wallow in a spirit of timidity and fear? Or will we step into the courage that we see in Peter that comes from the Spirit of God dwelling in us? We spend our time whining about our inability to satisfy the gods of power, control, status, and money, or will we embrace the Holy Spirit? Willing to press through pain and suffering with Jesus into a renewal of resurrection so profound, we've only started to see glimpses of it. Come what may, with the apostles, with the church, with Jesus, nevertheless, we press on. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you very much because we do know that you came to rescue us. But as we live in our church together and in our community and as we study your word and as the decades pass, we admit that there are times all throughout the history of your church that we wander. And we see in these moments and in this word you calling us back to true faith in you. Help us to embrace your way and truth and life. Help us to be willing to live with you, come what may. And thank you for showing us and proving to us that you are constantly giving us life as we do it and that you Just will give two us songs, eternal, guys. purified, perfect life for all the rest of our days. Amen.